Hey guys, welcome to the Wooden Cross Podcast. This is your host Im Long and let's get started with this new episode. Hello and welcome to the episode 12 of the Wooden Cross Podcast. In these two-part episodes, I talked to Miss Penry Lokikon, a native of Nagaland but currently based in Delhi as Senior Manager, Postgraduate Admissions, Ashoka University, Delhi. She is also doing a research work for her PhD in Old Testament titled Text, Language and the Harmonics of Translation, a Comparative Analysis of the Hebrew and Greek Text of Isaiah. So this is a two-part episode titled The Politics of Translation. In today's episode, we discuss on the question of the politics of translation in literature and how translation of a particular text, be it fiction or religious text, affects the way we conceive and receive the message in a different context. And in the next episode, we will discuss how the politics of translation has affected the translation process of our tribal Bibles. Ben, welcome to the Wooden Cross Podcast. Can you tell us something about yourself, what you are doing in Delhi and something about your research work? Thank you very much, Imlong, for having me in this podcast. I'm very glad to be here. Presently, I am working at Ashoka University and I am looking after the postgraduate programs. And at the same time, I'm also pursuing my PhD in Old Testament. I just want to share a little bit about my research. Uh, my research work is primarily focused on the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. As we all know that it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was the standard edition of both the synagogue and the early church of the Greek-speaking Jews and Christians. In the New Testament period, Septuagint gained uh, prominence because it was quoted by the, by the New Testament writers and even in early Christianity, it gained quite a prominence. This is primarily my research work. In this episode, we will be discussing on the line of translation. Translation not strictly in the Bible itself, but generally as a literary translation. So. Let me just dive into the question of translation now. Translation is an important process in the literary world. Philosophers such as Paul Ricoeur, Gadamer, and post-colonial literary theorists like Gayatri Spivak have been critically examining the theory of translation. Can you enlighten us with the problems in the translation studies? So, uh, as, as you said, translation is a very important process in the literary world. Uh, the influence of translation on cultures is undeniable. So, even from classical times, the translation between Greek and Latin languages, it was an important milestone, especially in biblical translation from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek and Latin. The whole notion of translation is uh, very important for us. However, when we look at translation as it is, there are certain problems that arise and this problem in translation studies is an age-old problem. Crudely put, there's like a debate on in translation studies between word-for-word translation and sense-for-sense translation. Close study of the history of the theory of translation, it shows us that it has predominantly been divided into two camps. Of course, um, I'm trying to highlight the two extremities or the two polar opposites. There's a wide range of spectrum in between, but just to highlight the problem, I just want to bring out the two camps, which is the literal translation and the free translation. So when we talk about uh, theories of translation, it can be traced as far as back to the Romans like Horace and Cicero, who talked about uh, word-for-word translation and sense-for-sense translation. So in a sense, 
the word-for-word translation camp would try to be as faithful to the source text as possible and so they would try to bring out as literal a translation as possible whereas on the other hand the sense for sense translation would focus more on the conveyance of meaning to the target audience so there would be more freedom and so in that sense there would be a freer sort of a translation when we highlight these two problems in translation studies uh, and if we look at the history of translation theories the conceptual shifts on translation theories are based on these two dichotomies this polarity is existent even in uh, translation theories today but they come in different terminologies like foreignizing versus domesticating or direct versus oblique or formal correspondent versus functional equivalent this range of approaches can be gr- grouped between these two sets of theories and the translators or the translation theory would either incorporate both or choose one over the other and when there is a choice between one over the other i think that is problematic in translation theories because the two competing theories they have been influenced by two completely different philosophical grounds we can trace this debate to the problem of the distinction between objectivism and relativism on one hand we have what is called the enlightenment theory of translation who would fall into the objectivist camp and argue for a kind of translation that falls under the category of the literalist they would primarily be influenced by enlightenment sciences and on the other hand uh, the other camp would be the deconstructionist theory of translation highly influenced by relativism and so we can group them under the free translation category but i'm not saying that it is either this or that there is a wide spectrum of theories that come in between but these are the two main prominent problems that we see in translation theory and i think that this sort of problem arises because of the notion of language that one holds for instance uh, sometimes we have the concept of the untranslatability of languages so there is this whole notion that every language is different and there can be no sort of similarities or commonalities between these languages and hence when translation takes place there is an abundance of uh, free translation that's taking place and since there's no correspondence between the two languages the translator can take a free rein in translating but on the other hand uh, for someone who would hold uh, the philosophy that there is a universal language structure then they would say that there is a possibility of translation and there can be an exact replica of meaning from one language to another this would argue for a literal word for word type of translation and any deviation from the source text would be seen as a mistake on the part of the translator these are some of the problems that i've seen in translation studies and this creeps in into septuagint studies as well since i'm focused in uh, septuagint studies and there's a debate among old testament scholars as well on the translation of the septuagint so um there's one group of people one group of scholars who would argue that the translators they tried to make an accurate translation from the hebrew text to the greek text whereas on the other hand there's another group of scholars who would say that um there has been intentional changes in the septuagint in order to conform to the ideas of the translator in order to make the source text more relevant to their own context the translators sort of had a free reign in when they were translating 
So this whole notion of variations between the Greek text and the Hebrew text arises because the translators try to take free translation theory approach in their translation. So when there are intentional deviations, they can be ascribed to factors such as theological or ideological or polemical concerns of the translators. So um, uh, this is the basic problem that we can see in translation studies. So you have mentioned uh, very important points. Uh, you have brought out the problematic issues. We'll be getting back to those issues in the later part of our discussion. How theories and methods such as word for word or thoughts for thoughts and how the theory of objectivism and especially relativism in the postmodern translations have really crept into literature and then how even now in the contextual settings, the post-colonial reading of the Bibles, how those relative theory has affected. So we'll be coming back to those issues. But moving on again, um, translation process is not uh, just the translation of a piece of words or paragraph into another language. That's not what I understand. So it is an intricate relationship between the translators and the text in translation. So now, what are the challenges that the text comes along for the translators in the process of translation? I think that one of the major challenges that a translator faces in his or her task of translation would be balancing between these two extremities that I've just uh, discussed, uh, between literal and free translation. As I've mentioned earlier, there is this notion of whether a text can be translated in its fullness or not. So when a, when a translator translates, there are certain theories that undergird her. And uh, when we talk about a text, the source text is already contextualized within its own historical context out of which it was written. I think for someone who holds on to the notion of the literal translation, would argue for the capability of the translator to be able to go into the mind of the author and be able to extract exactly what the author meant when the text was being written and be able to replicate it in its target language. So I think that is one of the challenge that would come. Then the whole concept of can the source text be really accessed in its own uh, historical context and whether the authorial intention is accessible to someone who is translating from 21st century context. Um, so I think that is one of the major challenges that uh, comes along for a translator when he's dealing with a source text. Now, the question of authorial intention is very, very important in, in terms of translation. And now, is it a crime to move out from what the author really meant and then go with our translation? Does it happen in the process of free translation? I think that would happen when someone takes the freedom in translating and trying to go beyond the authorial intention. But then again, we have to understand that uh, we have to be clear in our philosophical undergirding whether it is really possible to get into the authorial intention, right? So these are very two different philosophical grounds that we are standing on. So it depends on whether the translator really believes that authorial yeah, yeah. access to the authorial intent is possible. And if it is not possible, of course, I think the translator would take free reigns. And maybe in the translation of biblical text, which is seen as like a sacred text, and which is seen as the word of God, there are other theological factors that will come in as well. 
is there is it a monovalent text or is it polyvalent so this question would also come in yeah i think that would be some of the factors that would come in but this requires compares the work of a translator to that of a middleman now between he says a translator is like a middleman between two masters between an author and a reader a self and another can you comment on this important remarks made by this philosopher on translator when ricker wrote his book on translation uh, ricker is a hermeneutic philosopher uh, when ricker brought out his book on translation he was trying to bridge this gap between uh, objectivism and relativism and even in the process of translation he saw this problem he saw that uh, there can be no exact replica of a text and on the other hand having free reigns over translation can also be problematic so he lays out two approaches to translation he says that uh, translation is a transfer of a spoken message from one language to another and he uses it as synonymous with the interpretation of any meaningful whole within the same speech community so while uh, ricker dismisses the notion of a perfect yeah. or literal translation he advocates for translation as linguistic hospitality so where the translator makes a conscious attempt to enter into a dialogue with the other's language and also make space for openness between the two languages so uh, when we say the other we are not just talking about ricker is not just talking about the human being as being the other but all forms of dif- differences so the concept of language and translation can also be considered as the other and um, so the source text can also be considered as an other for a translator who is trying to translate that text for his own community paul ricker's linguistic hospitality is to be at home in the language of the other and at the same time to host the other's language in one's own world of language so uh, in the process of translation ricker stresses not only on the importance of the subjectivity of the translator but also in the importance of hosting the other's language through linguistic hospitality the importance to both the source text even though it is the other for the translator and the target text and also the translator's own biases and own subjectivity are given equal importance in the process of translation very important remark that you have made about the course position is the linguistic hospitality so how does this um, this work when you translate a bible now is it trying to say that you no know, we have to accommodate what we understand in our context or do we have to use what the text is saying in our own language or in in the way that we understand is that what he means by this linguistic hospitality when he talks about linguistic hospitality he brings out three aspects of translation that are equally important that is the source text the translator and the translated text it is the fusion of these three aspects or let's call it the three horizons that there can be linguistic hospitality that takes place so for him in the process of translation the translator goes into sort of a mourning as in mourning the loss of something as well as accepting in linguistic hospitality when the translator practices linguistic hospitality he has to give up some things from his own language from the target text and also be willing to give up some things from the source text because 
uh, they cannot be exactly replicated so the translator has to be willing to be able to let go of certain things and at the same time imbibe certain things from the source text to be able to convey to the target text so yeah this is something that you would say about linguistic hospitality this is very very important when it comes to now oral language especially in our translation now i i don't know whether you would agree with me or not but our language is not as vibrant as we see i mean like greek or hebrew or like the english language itself our translations are many from are mainly from the english text and when you compare it with the original text then there will be lots of discrepancies there will be lots of problems not in a sense a problem but there will be lots of things terms and terminologies words and phrases that will not be available in our own local language now how do you accommodate those thoughts how do you accommodate those words those phrases when you translate a bible or a text into a language that is not so rich in its content i would respectfully disagree with you on that because when we say that our language is not as culturally rich or vibrant as hebrew or greek or even english i think we have bought in into the colonial narrative of us the colonized being savages and being uneducated in their terms and i feel that when the colonizers came they have imposed their language structure on us without giving importance to our own uh, rich diversity cultural diversity that we have uh, the rich oral tradition that we have i think to compare the grammatical structure of this other languages like english and then to compare to something like ours which is mostly oral hardly written down i think would not be a fair comparison and it, it would also not be fair to say that we are culturally deprived in our language structure because i think there are so many things in our languages which are more meaningful and would express more meaning in depth in our own languages rather than in the english language or in hebrew or greek one example that i would like to cite is um, exodus 34 in english it says when the lord saw that he had turned aside to see god called to him out of the bush moses moses and he said here i am the way this verse has been translated into the lotha is quite rich and it captures uh, meaning structures which are not captured by the english and neither by the greek in the lotha we have an additional word saying how shilo avanga which means yes how how is a term that we use when someone calls out to us when we use that term that is an additional term added in the lotha language by the translators even though they translated from the english and is nowhere seen in the english or the hebrew or the greek it is something that's been added by the lotha translators and i think this sort of brings out the the richness of our language you have said in your research paper that the text represents the cultural identity and artifacts of the reader so in your case you have been talking about the lotha culture and social identity so generally how does the politics of translations helps in retaining that unique identity of a community or readers through a particular text uh, let me just cite an example for spiwak in her politics of translation she strongly argues for the feminist agenda to achieve women's solidarity true reading politically how do you see that in our context in our in our setting 
when Spivak talks about the politics of translation, she is trying to highlight that translation is not to be seen just as an a political movement, but it is uh, political. And underlying this politics of translation are race, ethnicity, caste, etc., that come into play in translation, especially in a post-colonial uh, context. And um, as you are aware, she uses the feminist approach in her translation work and sees how her own position as a feminist translator plays out in language and how language itself becomes entirely different in the hands of a feminist. And um, I think for her, she is critiquing the Western feminist model and the hegemony that the English language has and the politics it has, the power it has over translations. Her major works are her translation uh, of Derita from French to English and then also of uh, Mahashweta Devi's uh, poetry from Bengali to English. So I think her work focusing on translating from a native language into English so that the voices of the natives can be heard in the global context. I think what she's trying to emphasize is that when a non-native speaker translates a native text into English, they lose the nuances of that language and they lose the deep meaning structures of that language. But when a feminist uh, translator does it, I think she will be able to bring out into the English language the nuances of the Bengali language, for example, let's say. But um, in our case, we are talking about for instance, the translation of the Bible into our native language. So there's sort of a reversal of roles here because we are trying to use the English language as a source text and bring it to our native language. And when we talk about this, when we look at the earliest translations that took place, According to research, mostly these translations were done by missionaries with the help of a few local language speakers. But a native Lota person was not allowed to even uh, translate the text from English to Lota without the approval of the English-speaking uh, missionaries. So in that case, I think there has been a dominance of the missionaries culture and politics in the translation process which has seeped in into our Lotha language and the Lotha Bible. And the Lotha Bible, we talk about the Lotha Bible because it is the first published book in Lotha language as it is. And so it must gain prominence as a cultural artifact. But now, right now in our present society, we see it only as a translated text, a translated text of the Bible from the English into the Lotha language and it's not gaining currency. I think most Lota people would be detached from it and it is not seen as a cultural artifact. And I think the problem of that lies in the whole politics of translation. And so, yeah, that is one of the reasons why the Lota Bible is, does not hold prominence as a cultural artifact. All cultural artifacts, we, these are produced in societies that have undergone colonization. So even our society, we have undergone colonization. Colonization by the British, and then okay. the American missionaries. And so the Lotha Bible is also a product of a dialogue between the colony and the metropole. However, in this dialogue, in the production of the Lotha Bible, I think this dialogue was lopsided 
and the Lotha culture horizon in the translation of the text from English to Lotha was totally missed out. So that is one of the problems in translation in our current society. I want to quote once again Spivak's own word on it. In one university, she talks about translation as a process of translating one's own right, rights or liberty of a particular group or community. Does it imply that when you translate a Bible, when you translate a text according to your cultural identity and according to your cultural artifacts, does it mean that you establish your own identity or own right as a particular community or a group of people speaking a particular language? How does this rights translate in the process of translating? I'm not very familiar with Spivak's work, so I don't know how far I can comment on it. But I think that for any good translation to take place, if the whole notion of the fusion of horizons take place, the fusion of the source text, the target text, and the translation, if all of these horizons come into play in any translation, I think uh, it would be a good translation. And like using Ricker's concept of linguistic hospitality, where there is respect of the other's language, respect of the target text language, and also the awareness by the translator of his or her own shortcomings and own biases, all these factors would come into play uh, in translations. I mean, do you think the rights of the translator would be reflected in the translated text? That's what I feel now. When she talks about the translation of the rights, now she's particularly talking about gender. The Bible, even the translation of the Bible is mainly seen as a form of patriarchal setting. We talk about gender issues, we talk about women empowerment, we talk about gay rights now in our society. We are talking about these rights and that rights. Now, again, some of the points that you have mentioned about even in the translation of the Lotha Bible is the imposition of the Western colonial understanding into our text, right? That's what I think you, you meant when you said There's those missionary imposing, translating the text without taking much into consideration the tribal and their cultural heritage. So even in the process, uh, what I think what Spivak was commenting is about translating something that would be neutral in usage of language and in usage of words and meanings. I think that's what she was saying. Now, when you translate certain things, gender role is very important, even in in, in terms of Bible. And so, you now when you are translating something, a text, keeping the gender in mind, a particular gender in mind, then the other gender is subjugated or undermined in the process of translation and the meaning does not apply to that particular gender or to a particular community or to a particular group of people. And in that respect now, we will see that a particular group of people is being oppressed by the text. A particular group of people is being alienated by the text, from the text. So it's about bringing out the privileges and then I think those rights can be translated in, in terms of removing those particular pri- privileges that a particular gender holds in a particular text. So that's I think that's what she meant by uh, translating the rights. So moving on, um, So, translation is never-ending process and the same text in a different contextual setting will develop a new meaning from the same text. So, in this respect, does the text still holds the same value and relevancy in a changed contextual setting? 
I think the interesting thing about translation is that languages are always evolving and so translation is uh, definitely a never-ending process. There is the high probability of uh, change in meaning. So for example, I just wanted to bring out one example from my research. In Isaiah 23, we have a prophecy there. Some of the Septuagint scholars would say that when the Septuagint translator was translating it from the Hebrew to Greek, he was updating the prophecy. The prophecy was meant for the Jewish people of that time when the Hebrew text was written. But when the translator was translating it, he was trying to update the prophecy to suit his own context. So there are arguments like that, even in the Bible, which we see as a monovalent text, where there is only one meaning and where the meaning cannot be changed, there are still scholars arguing for something like an updated prophecy. And they present like very convincing uh, examples and arguments to support their case. And I think that, who knows, there is a high probability that the translator was doing that and we, we would never know. But there is high probability of new meaning evolving from the same text according to the cultural uh, setting of that context where the, tra uh, where the text was being translated. So it probably holds the same value. And of course, if it's being updated for that particular context, it, the relevancy would be quite strong. Moving on with our discussion, I want to change track from now this general particular discussions on translation to a very particular That's all we have for this episode. Do tune in next week and do follow the podcast in Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts and share with your friends and families. And I'll catch you all in the next episode.